Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we will be reading verses 1 to 10, or uh, uh, 5 to 10, 6 to 10 this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's been a long road for Israel to get to this point where the Ten Commandments are being reiterated to them a second time. How did we get here? Well, the Lord... The only true and living God in his mercy, in his compassion, and in his grace acted in history. Yes, in history on behalf of this ancient people we know as Israel. It began when the Lord called to a man named Abram who lived in an ancient city called Ur, which geographically speaking is located now in what is is now known as southern Iraq. And the Lord, for reasons known only to him, for his goodwill and his good purpose, said to this man, Abraham, Abraham, out of all the people on the earth, in Genesis 12, he said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram heard this call from the Lord, and he went. He obeyed the Lord. And we know that the ultimate blessing to the world that came as a result of Abram's obedience is the arrival of, the incarnation of, our Lord Jesus Christ, who descended from Abram. You can look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It'll tell you very clearly that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And he is the savior of the world. The savior of all who call out to him for forgiveness of sin, for salvation, for eternal life, like we heard in our communion time this morning. Jesus, who is indeed God himself, come to us in the flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He made his dwelling among human beings thousands of years after Abram, after this initial call as the Lord worked out his plans for and in and through and to Abraham. 
He expanded and he grew Abram's descendants over the next few generations from the immediate call to a household numbering about 70 persons, all of whom, to escape a devastating famine that had arisen in the land, went into Egypt and lived there for a few centuries. And during that time, the population of these Israelites absolutely exploded. Scripture says it like this in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And this rapid growth of the Israelites, it struck fear in the king of Egypt. It struck fear in the heart of Pharaoh. And what was Pharaoh's response? Enslave them all! And so he set taskmasters over the Hebrew people, and he afflicted them, Scripture tells us, with heavy burdens. And so the Israelites became slaves in Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt for quite a while, until the time came for the Lord to act on their behalf. And we read in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, that during those many days, the king of Israel, or the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people, and God knew. God knew it was time to act God knew it was time to deliver them for, from their enslavement, and so he called another man, a man named Moses, out of, from a burning bush to be the instrument by which he would release, demand that Pharaoh release the people. Moses would go into Egypt and stand right in front of Pharaoh and announce the impending strikes, the impending devastations and plagues that would come upon Egypt should Pharaoh refuse to let the people go. And you see the Lord, if you read the book of Exodus, you see the Lord for the sake of his people Israel. He pummeled and he battered Egypt by turning their entire water supply into blood, by overrunning the nation with gnats and frogs and flies, by putting all of the Egyptian livestock to death by afflicting the Egyptians with painful boils and sores all over their bodies, by sending hail upon the nation, hailstones that were so large that Moses had to warn the people to stay out from, stay, go inside, because if you got hit by one of them, you'd die. The Lord sent locusts to devour Egyptian crops, and the Lord blotted out the sun from over the nation so that Egypt must sit in a thick darkness. And finally... The Lord said to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus chapter 11, verse 4, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be such a cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. So after all of these upheavals, all of these distresses throughout Egypt, Pharaoh finally released the Israelites from enslavement in Egypt and, and went even further. He, the people drove them out of the land. 
only to regret their decision soon after when the Israelites were gone and they kind of looked out at their land and realized, we have a ton of work we got to do now. And so Pharaoh then dispatched his armies. The armies of the most well, these armies were the most well-trained on the earth at the time, only to watch as they approached Israel and the Lord blockaded them from actually reaching the fleeing nation. Egypt's army had to watch Israel as they started going through this Red Sea to the other side. But there came a moment when the Lord lifted the blockade and Pharaoh, in all of his wisdom, decided to command his armies to pursue Israel into the sea that had been split. And as the Egyptian armies raced after Israel, the Lord brought the, the parted sea crashing down on the Egyptian army. And Pharaoh and all his chariots and all his horsemen and all his foot soldiers, they were all decimated and destroyed right down to the very last man. You see, in that moment, the Lord delivered Israel and ensured not only that Israel was delivered, but by crushing the entire Egyptian army, the Lord ensured that the great threat of re-enslavement was dealt with and eliminated. Israel didn't have to lift a single sword, a single weapon in the process, which is why psalmists could later go on and say things like, be still and know that I am the Lord. Because it's historically true that God fought for and won the battles for Israel without them having to lift a sword. It does the same for us. And as the people came through the other side, they were finally free. They were liberated. They had been rescued. They were no longer slaves. The Lord had proven himself, as he always does, the Lord had proven himself to be mighty and powerful to save. He had shown and displayed to his people his great compassion, his great mercy, and his great love. The question now is, how should Israel respond to that great compassion, that great mercy, and that great love? How ought this nation to answer this God who has watched over them for centuries, who took them from one man, turned them into a nation, into a multitude, and is now about to lead them into a land that they can call home, a land of their own. How is this nation to respond to the Lord who turned them from a ragtag group of desert wanderers and turned them into a nation and delivered the land of Canaan into their hands, or was about to? What should their response be? This God has delivered us from enslavement. Well, the answer is easy, right? It ought to be a recognition of this fact. The Lord loves us. The Lord wants our best. The Lord has shown us His love in the most unmistakable of ways. And so in response, we will trust the Lord who has done us good at every turn. And this trust and affection will be shown to the Lord as we hear His commands and obey them. And that's what we get to when we read the very first sentence, the sentence that introduces us to this series of Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
That is like the opening statement to everything that's going to come next. Everything you hear is for your good. And always remember that as I give you these commands, remember, I am the God who brought you out of enslavement in Egypt. These commands are not for your hurt. They're not for your harm. They're not to restrict you from freedom. They're not to restrict you from joy or life. They are given to you to promote those very things. And they're given to you by the God who has revealed to you quite clearly how much I love you. This was to be a constant reminder of this fact, that the Lord has proven his great love and loyalty to his people. And their response to a God so loyal and so loving ought to be obedience to his commands, which the Lord made clear, should you do this, should you obey my commands in the land, it will only serve to increase your joy and your abundance and your prosperity in the land that I am giving to you. Because the Lord brought you up out of enslavement, then he starts with the first command, which we looked at last week. You shall have no other gods before or beside me, meaning you shall not serve or honor or respect or worship any other so-called God, not because there actually is any other God. No, you are to instead chop them down, burn them, destroy them, dash them into pieces, tear apart anything left by the idolaters who once owned this land that I am giving to you. See to it that you worship the Lord and you worship Him alone without distraction, diversion, or disturbance. You shall not worship or serve any of the so-called gods of the peoples because they do not exist. And they cannot speak or see or hear or help those who have created them and those who call upon them. But instead, Israel, you shall serve the God of life. You shall serve the God who seeks the joy of his children and knows that humanity will find its ultimate joy in unhindered service to and worship of the Lord. Will find their joy in obeying the commands of the Lord who loves his people with such a fierce and jealous love that he commands us all to repent of our sin. This command is given to us by the Lord because he loves his people. Believe in his name, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him, get on that difficult and narrow road. It's the only road that leads to eternal life and the Lord has established it in his love for you. So the Lord opened his, the Ten Commandments by prohibiting the worship of any God other than himself and now he continues with the second command in verse, five, in verse 8. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, the making of carved images or representations of a god or deity for the purpose of honoring it, venerating it, worshiping it, or bowing down to it is clearly and expressly forbidden by this command. Now, just for the sake of understanding, this word will come up again later, venerating. This word venerating means to greatly respect, to revere, to hallow, to esteem, to pay homage to, or to consider sacred. It's a it's an important word for later on as we move forward. But there are two ways to understand this command. 
to understand what is unauthorized and what is unsanctioned here. First, it is carving and crafting images of the so-called gods of the nations for the purpose of worshiping them. And second, it is attempting to put a form to the living God. Because no matter how beautiful that form is, no matter how majestic or artistic or magnificent it is, that image, whatever it might be, will always fall infinitely short of the Lord's glory and splendor. Nor are God's people permitted to craft or carve or create images of things that have to do with the Lord for the purpose of venerating them. We venerate no images, no statues, nothing carved anywhere. It is expressly prohibited by the Lord among His people. So let's start with the first. The making of carved images or representations of gods or deities that are not the living God for the purpose of worship, honor, and reverence. As we've noted repeatedly, one of the dominant themes in the book of Deuteronomy is this do not have any other gods beside the Lord. The Lord forbade all idols and all carved images in Israel. It's one of the most frequent and one of the most recurrent commands in the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Old Testament. For a few examples include Exodus chapter 20. There the Lord told Moses to say these words to the people of Israel. This is the previous generation, not the one that's standing um, here listening to the words of Deuteronomy. This is the previous generation. He said to them in verse 22 to 23, You shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked to you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. You notice the separation there? There's a distinction. Gods to be with me, make for yourself gods of gold. The second one actually means to put me into a form. The first is gods other than me. The Lord also declared to the people the blessings that would accompany the eradication of idols in the land of Canaan and the full wholehearted devotion of the Lord under this covenant. Listen to this. This is, this is wonderful stuff right here. If only they would have obeyed. Listen to Exodus 23, 23 to 25. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But... You shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. And I will take your sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I don't know how that sounds to you, but that sounds like excellent blessing to me. Get rid of and overthrow all of the idols. Don't serve them, but serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And he said to Israel under this covenant that he would ensure that they had an abundance of food, an abundance of water, while also taking away from them sickness and barrenness and miscarriage out of the land. Sign me up. Had they obeyed, there would have been no sickness. It's amazing how that generation so easily and so blatantly ignored these words. 
The Lord said to them, I have good for you. Just do what I tell you to do. do. Obey my commands and good will be the result. And yet, what did they do? They did what they wanted to do. They said, yeah, I know, God, that you have said to do this, but I'm, we're going to do this right here. We're actually going to bring in the gods of the lands and we're going to worship them. And they, for, they forsook this, these wonderful blessings. Had they obeyed, there would be no sickness. As I look at that, I think, you know, when you read the Old Testament in many ways, as you look at Israel, Israel is very much a mirror into our own selves. You look at Israel in the Old Testament and it's like holding a mirror up to me or to you. We know the commands of the Lord, don't we? We know how much the Lord loves his children, those who come to him and believe in his name. We know the promise of Christ who said, I have come to give you life and not just life, but life to the full. We know the Lord Jesus is one who is, is seeking our good. We know the Lord Jesus has rescued us from our enslavement to sin and provided us the pathway to eternal life and joy and abundance. And yet, how often do we do exactly the same thing that Israel does? I know, Jesus, you have said do this and do this and do this, but I, I'm going to do my own thing. We get in our own way. We're our own worst enemies. We all want joy, and yet we fight against it every time we disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we look at something in the New Testament, there's a command from our Lord, and we just don't do it, we are fighting against our own joy. We are fighting against the Lord who has proven at every turn how much He loves us and how much He wants our good and abundance. Again, in Leviticus 19, we read... Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And again in Leviticus 26, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. While we read, we just read of all the blessings that would come to the Lord or come to the people if they follow the Lord's command here, the Lord also makes clear the opposite. In Deuteronomy 27, verse 15, he says to everyone who would bow down to these idols, he said, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or, a, a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by, hands, by the hands of a craftsman and set it up, sets it up in secret. The Lord very clearly displayed to them to do one is life, to do one is death. And for all who carve and worship idols... Who or what is it that they actually bow down to and serve when they bow down to and serve those idols? Deuteronomy 32, 17 tells us they sacrificed to demons that were no gods. And what happens to those who serve gods aside from the Lord? Who serve their idols, their demons who are in fact no gods? The psalmist says in Psalm 97, all worshipers of images are put to shame. That's the end result for those who don't repent of this wicked, awful, abominable deed. They're all put to shame. And so you can see, carving and serving false gods is forbidden by the Lord in the strongest and most clear of terms. 
But why would the Lord consider it necessary or deem it necessary to reiterate and repeat this command to Israel so many times? This isn't the last time we're going to be discussing this subject as we work through the book of Deuteronomy. And here's the reason. Because what he was asking Israel to do was something unique, something different, something that hadn't been a reality on the earth at that time. The Lord commanded something counterintuitive from the nation of Israel, from his people. He commanded them to worship him without the utilization of any image or any statue or anything like that at all. That's actually revolutionary in this day. In every religion of the day, the peoples made and used idols. They made and used statues, carved images in their worship. The Apostle Paul, actually, describing the practice of the Gentiles throughout history, said in Romans chapter 1, speaking about the Gentiles, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is how mankind had worshipped up to that point. By carving images of mortal men, birds and animals or hybrids of all of those things and then bowing down to them. But to Israel, the Lord said something surprising given their cultural moment. He said in verse 8, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, like as in any image at all. That was a form of worship that had not been practiced before. Now you imagine, right, that you are a citizen of Israel. You are an Israelite, and you've just come out of Egypt, where you and your ancestors have spent centuries in a land that was full of shrines, and full of idols. And these were the very center of the nation's religious and political life. Everywhere you went, there was a shrine to Bast or Ta or Osiris or Horus or Ra or Anubis. And they littered the landscape. And some of these statues were taller than our building. Some of them were fit into a temple so that the people could go in and worship it. Some of it were made to the size of your hand so you could put it on your mantle. But everywhere you went, there was a statue, an image, or an effigy of some kind for the people to worship. See, this is the, kind of, this is the, the state that Israel lived in, where such idolatry was so common. And it didn't end when they left Egypt. When they left Egypt and proceeded to Canaan, guess what? There too. The lands were filled to the brim with shrines and temples and altars and high places and idols to Baal and Ashtoreth. That's why the Lord had to keep saying to them, burn them, tear them down, get rid of them when you enter into the land. And then around Canaan, also all of the nations served their carved images. There was for Israel no escaping it. Serving idols was at this time the air that the people's of the, of the earth breathed. And if the living God despises this practice and hates it, and he forbids it from his people, his holy nation at the time, his royal priesthood, if he would say, you cannot participate or engage with this, he would have to state it, restate it, and state the command over and over again because it ran so absolutely contrary to all the practices of all the peoples around them. 
Israel alone, among all the peoples, was given this command by the Lord. No images, no idols, at all. Because I am the Lord who delivered you from Egypt, not those so-called gods, and when I spoke to you from the mountain, you saw no image. The one true and living God cannot be captured by some statue. Therefore, Deuteronomy 4.16, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. Israel, you are to be completely distinct from the practices and the belief systems and the values of the nations around you. And in like manner to Israel, we in our own day must also be extremely careful we must be extreme, uh, ext- beware uh, with very with with the, with clear-headedness. We must be on guard against adopting the values of our culture as they run contrary to the revealed will of the Lord. We must be careful of the air that we breathe, culturally, metaphorically speaking. And it it really does become more difficult than you might think. I mean, you look around at the numerous gatherings and the numerous groups that might apply to themselves the label of a church. And while there are so many good, faithful, God-glorifying congregations, the Lord always ensures, I love the story of Elijah as he's in the cave and he's like, it's only us, it's only me, I'm the only one left. And the Lord's like, no, 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 no. Simmer down now. There's 7,000 other prophets who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So there's always, the Lord always maintains his folks who haven't bowed their knee to the idols of the age. There are so many good God, God-glorifying congregations, but there are also many who are obviously and manifestly bowing down to the idols of the day, worshiping the gods of the age in place of the Lord. Whereas for Israel, it was to, the temptation was to worship the idols of the nations, the carved idols that they worship. In our own The pressure of society has led many to bow down to the cultural idols of our day, which are now displayed not in idol form, but generally in flag form. This is the new kind of metal image. That is the cultural air we breathe, and so we must be on guard and vigilant against succumbing to the pressures of the nations around that we live in. Remember, at all times... The church is the people of God. And we, as the people of God, what do we do? We seek to worship and to live for the Lord together as a people. We exhort one another. We encourage one another. We inspire one another. We defend one another. We love one another. We console one another. We sing with one another. We labor side by side with one another. And we seek to live for and bless the name of Jesus Christ together. But the temptation and the pressure to carry the idols of the nations in our midst is as strong today for us as it was for Israel in their own day. And the tactics that are employed by the world as they try to smuggle them in, those idols, are many, numerous, and varied. You might hear, well, that's not nice. That's not loving. You're too inflexible. You might hear a whole bunch of different things. But we are called 
my fellow brothers and sisters, we are called, like Israel was in reference to idols in their land, we are called to be bold, convictional, inflexible in our avoidance of the idols of the day. We are called to speak the truth in love to the world. No, your sinful and wicked idols are not welcome here. We serve one Lord, we serve one Master, we serve one King, and His name is Jesus Christ. Your idols, should you bring them in here, will be destroyed, burnt, knocked down, overthrown. Only one King. Now, I think we can all agree the Lord is clear about outlying and banning carved images of other gods. But what about the second thing? What about images of the Lord himself? That's also addressed and covered and prohibited by this command. There is not allowed any images of other gods, but there's also not allowed any images of the one true God. And why? I mean, we already stated it. Because any carved image, any attempt to fit the Lord into a shape always falls infinitely short of his majesty and only serves to profane him. To limit him who is beyond our understanding, who is beyond our counsel, who is beyond our grasp outside what he has revealed to us. This is the Lord, the majestic, glorious Lord who is all that he is everywhere at all times. This is the Lord, the majestic Lord who needs nothing from us. He needs nothing outside of his triune self. This is the Lord who is sovereign over all things who in his wisdom rules over every single aspect of creation, but creates everything in such a way that he ensures the prayers and the choices of the people in creation are actually real and meaningful. How the Lord does this? It's beyond our comprehension. We could go on declaring the ways our Lord is eternally and infinitely glorious, and we would seek, some of us, to, not us, but some people would seek to take that and bring it down into an image of some kind? How do you do that? It's for this reason that the Lord prohibited Israel, and he prohibits us today from making images of himself, because images present the opposite picture of the Lord than what is true and what is real. Think about it. Images... And idols are cared for by those who carve them and serve them. But the Lord cares for and carries his people, needing absolutely nothing from them, but instead gives to us life and breath and everything. The Lord is alive and living while images are inert and lifeless. The Lord has spoken to his people in many and varied ways throughout history. But the Idols never speak, never answer, never help. They know nothing, they do nothing. These are a few of the reasons why trying to put the Lord into a form is so gross and vulgar. And the great church leader, John Calvin, speaking to this issue said, God, and I quote, God is insulted when he is clothed in a corporeal image. So the Lord, as we read in John 4... From the, word, the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, he said this, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, not as in the form of some sort of idol, 
No, you worship him in spirit and in truth. You worship him who you do not see. You do, we do not worship by putting a physical form to the Lord and then bowing down to it. The Lord revealed no form at Sinai because no form in creation, even more, all of creation put together could not adequately capture the fullness of God. It always falls short. So making a form is always a reduction of the Lord by the maker to fit human ideas, human perceptions, human limitations. So the image, this, this prohibition against images of God is comprehensive. Nothing in all the earth, says the command. Nothing that has its beginning on the earth, whether it's something in the skies, something on the land, or something in the sea. Nothing is to be turned into an image of the Lord. But even with so clear a prohibition, do you think that stopped the stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites from doing this very thing? No, it did not. As we read Exodus 32, Moses remained on Mount Sinai as the law was giving the Lord to him, to the people of Israel. And without their leader, Moses, present, the Israelites ran up to Aaron. And they said, they said to Aaron in Exodus 32, 1, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. At this, at this moment, Aaron should have said something along the lines of, uh, Moses told us to wait here until he returns, so we're not going to do anything like that. But the people of Israel grew impatient and they accosted Aaron with the demand to make them gods or to make them physical images, make them metal idols to go before them because they wanted something they could see. They wanted something toward which to, they could direct their worship. They did this even as the pillar of the Lord's presence remained, right? You got the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Those were with Israel for the entire time they wandered through the wilderness. They could see that. The Lord provided manna for them every single day. There were so many visible signs of the Lord's presence among them, and yet, even so, they wanted a physical representation of the Lord's. God's who shall go before us, as they put it. And Aaron, Aaron, for some unknown reason... Perhaps lacking strong, committed, faithful leadership in the camp because Moses wasn't there. Aaron said to the people in Exodus 32, verse 2, Okay, then take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Listen, tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. The golden calf was not an attempt to create some new God to worship, it was an attempt by Israel, by Aaron, in the absence of Moses, to put a shape to the God who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And as the people celebrated the creation of this calf, Aaron made it clear who the calf is supposed to represent, right? He built an altar before it and proclaimed a feast to the Lord. Why a calf? Because a calf in those days symbolized strength and fertility. The Lord was indeed mighty in power, and he was the God who commanded his people to be fruitful and multiply. And so Aaron used the pictures of his day to craft a metal idol and then tied to it 
the name of the Lord and proclaimed a feast around it. And what is the Lord's response to this? In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7, we read, The Lord said to Moses, so Moses is up on the mountain. He kind of doesn't know what's happening down at the base. And he said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, whom brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now Moses would go on to intercede and implore the Lord to be merciful to this people. And for this reason the Lord relented from the disaster that he had threatened. While the Lord didn't completely consume the nation... And begin again with Moses, the nation did suffer greatly for this grievous, wicked, abominable sin. On that day, Exodus 32, 28 tells us about 3,000 men of the people fell. And they fell because the sons of Levi went to and fro throughout the camp, killing, as Exodus 32, 27 tells us, his brother and his companion and his neighbor. That was the first stage of penalty for this wicked act of idolatry, for making themselves an image of the Lord. And then, on top of that, in Exodus 32, 35, the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. So are we starting to get the picture? No idols, no graven images, no carved statues of other gods, or the one true living God. None at all. And so what does that mean for us today? If we think about this today... I find that in many ways we're very flippant about representations or images of the Lord in our own day, especially if that image that is presented to you becomes how you view the Lord in your mind. Isaiah will tell us that the Lord had no form that we should be, that we should consider him like, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't like the most handsome man in the world. And yet, have you ever noticed everyone who is cast as Jesus in some sort of show is always like some... I'm not going to say gorgeous man, but you know what I mean? Some like model of a man. It just gives the wrong impression. It's an anti-biblical impression. If that image becomes the picture of the Lord in your mind, that's not a good thing. And so you know, this was a huge deal for the reformers. Those men who protested the Roman Catholic Church in their protests against many things about the Roman Catholic system, first of which was the heretical view of salvation by a combination of grace and works, also among their protestations was this rebuke for the multitude of images and statues and carvings that were used in their worship. Even today, not too long ago, I attended a funeral service at a Roman Catholic place, and I could not believe the quantity, the plentiful number of idolatrous images that were, that were all throughout the building. Graven images of Christ on a cross, life-size statues of Mary, images of people I didn't even know who they were. And all of them were placed behind another life-size statue of Pope John Paul II who stood before the congregation going like this. 
many of the reformers condemned the practice, these practices in worship. And the Roman Catholics, in response to the strong condemnation of the reformers, they held their own council called the Council of Trent. As the reformers were appealing to the second commandment to say, you can't have such images in your worship, this is what they did. They doubled down in the Council of Trent and said this, and I quote, The images of Christ and of the Virgin Mother of God and of the saints are to be had and retained, particularly in churches, and due honor and veneration are to be given to them. Not that any divine or or virtue is believed to be in them on account of which they are to be worshipped, or anything is to be asked of them, or that trust is to be reposed in images, as was of old by the Gentiles who placed their hopes in idols, but because the honor which is shown to them is referred to the prototypes which these images represent. So that we, through the images which we kiss or bend the knee, adore Christ and venerate the saints whom they represent. In other words, we know the statues aren't themselves divine, nor are they to be worshipped for their own sake. No, 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 no. We would just be repeating the foolishness of the Gentiles of old if we did that. We don't worship them. We just kiss their feet a little. We bow our knee before them as they represent the real people who inspired them. But did you see, bend the knee? I think if you look at the command... No carved images, do not what before them? Bow? This is exactly what Israel did with the golden calf. They venerated the calf because it pointed beyond itself to the Lord. It's the same thing they're saying here. They're saying, when I kiss the feet of the statue, in my mind I'm not kissing the foot of the statue, but the person behind the statue, which is not any better than bowing and worshiping to and worshiping the statue itself. And it's because of this command... That many churches throughout the, since the Reformation until now, you can go into some, and the sanctuaries and the places of worship are completely simple. Look at the simplicity and the plainness here. No pictures, no images, no statues, no likenesses. Why? Because the second command tells us it's forbidden. If a reformer came into this sanctuary, they'd feel quite at home, except they might want a little bit of a bigger pulpit because it shows the centrality of the word. On a personal level, this is not something I'm putting on you, but I take this a step further, and I will refuse to watch any TV shows or movies or anything like that that put a face or a likeness to any person of the triune God. Not putting this on you, but that's one of the applications that I have personally made from this command. Use your conscience on this, but be ve- I, would, I would say this, be very, very, very careful. The only image or representation of the Lord that he permits is one that captures his fullness perfectly. Does anyone know if there is one? There is. According to the New Testament, there is only one image that fits this criteria, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, who is God himself, come to us in the flesh. That's why when the Apostle Paul writes to the the Colossian church and he says this, it is like a thunderbolt 
He says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. That is meant to strike you like lightning. He goes on, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And the writer of Hebrews, again, strikes us again, saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And listen to this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Boom! That is a lightning bolt. This would have absolutely jarred the readers of these letters. My whole life I've been told, no images, no images, no images, and now you tell me there is one that we bow down to, there is one that we worship, and it's Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Amen. Only Christ, only Christ, the God-man, perfectly reveals the Lord to humanity. Only in Christ do we see the God of perfect justice and perfect mercy displayed. Only in Christ do we see the perfect love and the perfect holiness of God displayed before our eyes. In Christ we see sinless righteousness. And it is Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. It is Christ who came to reconcile sinners to God. And he did this by taking on flesh. He is God. God from God took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. And he died a justice-satisfying, sin-bearing, sin-atoning death. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And Christ has, in all of these things, provided for anyone who would call out to him and for anyone who would believe in his name the pathway to forgiveness and life. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus. Believe in him who is the image of God, the only image that we are given permission, actually encouraged to bow down to and worship. Trust in Him for salvation and forgiveness. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. Still more to go in this command, but we're out of time this morning. But trust me, this next section about visiting iniquities of fathers to the sons, it'll come up again, so we will cover it in the future.